Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. I'm proud of you for getting out this morning. I know it was cold. It was 10 degrees when I woke up this morning, and that's just, that's just not good, right? That's just not the way it's supposed to be. But I'm, I'm proud of you. You showed up. You put on your coats, and you're here. And uh, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Go to Luke chapter 3 as we continue through the gospel according to Luke. Uh, you may have seen it this week on social media, not by me, but by my wife, that I did have a few days of uninterrupted study time sitting at home, and, and so we have one point this morning. That's all we have time for is just one point, but like, I don't know, six or seven subpoints to the one point. Uh, so uh, if you are taking notes, get ready. There's a lot of bouncing around, a lot of verses this morning, but uh, I'm excited about the message this morning because it is about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which seems to be somewhat of a controversial or a misunderstood uh, theology. And really, next week, we'll get into the baptism, the, the ordinance of baptism and what that represents in us being in Christ and really Christ as our substitution. And so uh, as you're turning there on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, let me tell you a story written by Lee Strobel. He says, we were doing a baptism service. And we told people before they came to the platform to be baptized to take out a little piece of paper and to write down a few of the sins that they had committed, to fold the paper up, and then when they came up to the platform, there's a large wooden cross on the stage, to take that piece of paper and pin it to the cross. Because, as the Bible says, our sins have been nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. And he has fully paid for them with his death. And then turn and come to the pastor. Maybe you've been a part of a service like this. I know uh, as a youth pastor, I did something somewhat like this. So he says, I want to read this letter that was written by a woman during that baptism service. She says, I remember my fear. In fact, it was the most fear I remember in my life. I wrote as tiny as I could on that piece of paper the word abortion. I was so scared. Someone would open the paper and read it and find out it was me. I wanted to get up and I wanted to walk out of that auditorium during the service. The guilt and the fear were so strong. When my turn came, I walked towards the cross and I pinned that paper there. I was then directed by a pastor to be baptized. The pastor looked at me straight in the eyes and I thought for sure he was going to read that terrible secret I'd kept from everybody for so long. But instead... I felt like God was telling me, I love you. It's okay. You've been forgiven. I felt so much love for me, a terrible sinner. It's the first time I'd ever really felt forgiveness and unconditional love. It was unbelievable. It was indescribable. Lee Strobel goes on to say, do you have inside of you a secret sin that you wouldn't even want to write down on a piece of paper? out of fear that someone might open it and read it and find out. He said, let me tell you something about Jesus that I know. Not only does he want to adopt you as his child, he wants to lift the weight of guilt off of your shoulders. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. Father, as we get into your word this morning, we thank you so much for the gift of forgiveness, the gift of your son Jesus Christ that we have been adopted into a family, adopted as sons and daughters, that you have brought us into your home. You've wiped away the slate clean. You've wiped away every sin that we've ever committed and every sin that we will ever commit. 
you're sovereignly in control of our salvation, and we thank you for the spirit that you've placed within us. Father, as we worship you today as a body of believers gathered together on this cold Sunday morning, we do so because we love you, and we love you because you first loved us. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Speak to us today. Change us from the inside out. In Christ's name, amen. Luke chapter 3, 15 through 17. That's all we have time for, 15 through 17. All right, let's go. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. The baptism of the Spirit, our salvation. Next week, we'll look at the baptism of Jesus, our substitution. But this week, our salvation. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is this inward immersion where we are brought into a right relationship with the Father. So, the baptism of the Spirit. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John, being the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 11, 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Symbolizing the fact that those in the kingdom of heaven will see Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. But John, being the greatest, as he begins to talk about the coming ministry of Jesus, says, listen, I'm, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not, I'm not even worthy. And so this was, this was a common understanding that a rabbi would never ask one of his disciples to stoop so low as to untie their sandals. That was humiliating. That was degrading. That was, that was off the table. They, they would never ask that. And then John says, you know what, I'm not, even, I'm not even worthy to do the most humiliating thing I can think of for Jesus. That's the attitude of a believer. The attitude of someone who really grasps who Jesus Christ is says, you know, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to do the most humiliating thing that I can think of. So let me ask you, is there anything you think that is too difficult too embarrassing, too degrading for you to do in obedience to Christ? Is there anything that you would say, you know what, I, I, just, I just don't think I can do that? Well, we're all called to the ministry. We're all called to the ministry, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times we do not serve in obedience because we say things like, that's not my calling. Well, Ephesians 4 11 through 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We've all been given a call to the work of ministry. And the work of ministry is for the building up of the body of Christ. So it's not a matter of whether or not you've been called. It's a matter of whether or not you're obedient. And there are all types of ways to follow the Lord in obedience. 
where we see needs, where we see that there's, here's an area I can serve in. But yet, sometimes we, we say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's too degrading. That's, that's not in my wheelhouse. That's not what I, I want to do. Right now, I want to compliment our deacons. Our deacons that are serving right now, are, they're, they're knocking it out of the park. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. In fact, there's a couple of young men who are serving as deacons right now that are serving in probably three or more areas in our church. Meaning that if they're serving in three or more areas, three out of four Sundays, they're serving somewhere. That's a lot of serving. There's a lot of areas in our nursery we've mentioned. I know Lauren's mentioned countless times needing more people to serve in nursery, and yet it seems to be the same ones carrying the weight. The work of ministry is for the building up of the body. And when the body says, you know what, as a member of the body, I'm going to serve. And when we serve, even in areas that we may not feel like that's where I want to serve, we're building up the body and we're taking the weight of service off the ones who are serving more often. And we're saying, you know what, I share this with you because it's about the body. This is what John the Baptist says. As Jesus is about to start his ministry, he says, listen, I'm not even worthy to do the most degrading thing. Another thing that comes to mind about things that we're not obedient is, is our call to be evangelists. Lifeway Research says a study conducted by Lifeway Research found 80% of those who attend church one or more times a month believe they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. But 61% have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. Why is it that we are not obedient in the area of evangelism? Well, I'll tell you one, fear. Fear. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid of how that conversation will go. Maybe I'm, I'm afraid that I won't know what to say. I won't have the answers. Maybe I'm afraid of losing a friend if I go into this conversation or losing my job or, or being looked at as one of, like one of those Christians. Maybe I'm just fearful. Or maybe I'm just indifferent. Maybe I'm more concerned with all the things that are going on in my life that I'm not really concerned about the salvation and the eternal life of those that are around me. Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller said, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about that? Or maybe the reason we're not obedient is sin. Maybe we're not evangelistic because of the sin that's in our life. Maybe we're living in a way that is so common to that of an unbeliever with the exception of attending a religious service that we know that our testimony will not have credibility in their ears. John says, listen, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. May that be our attitude of humility when it comes to serving the Lord. Whatever, whatever the obedience is, I, I want to say yes. 16, I will baptize you, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is what it means to be saved, to be moved upon by the Holy Spirit in such a way that we're brought to faith and united with Jesus. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is our salvation. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all made a drink of the same spirit. So as John talks about the baptism of the Spirit. He's saying one is coming who will bring salvation. You will be brought into a right relationship. You will be made whole. And so what are the different areas of this baptism of the Spirit? Well, number one is regeneration, or A, regeneration if you're taking notes. It's new birth. It's a secret work of God, the Holy Spirit, in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. 
It's a regeneration. It's the work of salvation in the heart of a believer which focuses on, the, on God's will and not focuses on our free will. It is what God does in the heart of a believer. As Matthew Barrett says, regeneration is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of granting spiritual life to dead sinners. This is not a work in which man contributes, but is a work of God alone. Much as an infant receives no credit for being born, man receives no glory from being regenerated by God. Because man needs a grace with resurrection power, then any willful activity on his own part, including faith itself, cannot be the cause, but the effect of this new birth. The grace of regeneration is the power of God that grants humans the ability to exercise faith and new inclinations towards God. The first thing that happens in the baptism of the Spirit is that there's a regeneration that takes place. That there's a rebirth. This is what Jesus would say to the religious leader Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, 3 through 6, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of this flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Listen, you must be born of water. There's, there's water that breaks when you're born, right? You must be actually born, but then also you must be born of the Spirit, which is a supernatural act of God on behalf of you. It is his work in our hearts. So regeneration is God's doing. And it is more in line with his will than our own free will. James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God the, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again, or born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Has been born of God. It's interesting here that John doesn't say everyone who believes will be born. He says everyone who believes, it shows evidence that you have been born again. So, what about witnessing? Romans 10, 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from through the word of Christ. So there is a responsibility, a call that is placed on the life of believers to be those who witness, those who share the gospel, share the good news, because we share and he saves. And that's how he has designed it to work. So those of us who are filled with the spirit, who have been regenerated, we have now been given this call to go and to share. So the question is, are you born again? Is there a regeneration that has taken place in your life? This is a very important question. Have I been born again? Well, how can an inner working of the Holy Spirit be visibly confirmed in my life? I'm going to give you two ways. One, regenerate believers stop habitually sinning. Regenerate believers stop habitually sinning. 1 John 
3.9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You can't keep on accepting sin in your life as if it's no big deal because he's changed your heart. 1 John 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We don't go on sinning. In other words, I like how J.C. Ryle puts it. The true Christian hates sin, flees from it, fights against it, considers it his greatest plague, resents the burden of its presence, mourns when he falls under its influence, and longs to be completely delivered from it. Sin no longer pleases him, nor is it even a matter of indifference to him. It has become a horrible thing which he hates. However, he cannot eliminate its presence within him. Though there's still sin in our lives, we do not accept habitual sinning because of the regeneration that's taken place in our life. So when sin does pop up in our life, even for a season, we mourn for it. We are wrecked by it. We hate sin because we have the Spirit living within us. The second thing we can see is the regenerate believers start habitually practicing righteousness. 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We may be able to make right choices, but we will never be able to produce a righteousness on our own. Any righteousness that comes out of our life and how we love God and how we love others is proof that there's been a regeneration that has taken place in our life. So we've stopped habitually sinning and we've started habitually showing righteousness or practicing righteousness. As John Newton says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in the eternal world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am not there yet. Are you? I'm not there yet. But by the grace of God, I'm not where I was. And this is a beautiful picture of regeneration. Next thing we see, B, residency. Indwelling of the Spirit takes place at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's the action by which God takes up permanent residence in the body of the believer. In the Old Testament, we saw the Holy Spirit. He would come upon people, and he would enable them with supernatural powers to, to do something. You know, you think of Samson, you know, and his great strength. But here in the New Testament, we see that the indwelling presence of the Spirit is for us forever. John 14. 16 through 17, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. The Holy Spirit not only regenerates you, but it then becomes a part of you indwells you, 1 John 4.15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. Romans 8.9. You, however, are not in the flesh, because, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is our helper. He gives us spiritual gifts. Not only have we been transformed, but now he's indwelling in us, taking up residency in 1 Corinthians 12, 
4 through 7. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each Christian, Tom Schreiner says, is baptized in the Spirit at conversion. And thus, each Christian is to be faithful to the gift that God has given them. And most importantly, seek to fulfill their gift in love for God and other Christians. Baptism, by definition, is an initiation event. And thus, it is a misreading of the evidence to argue from Acts that the baptism of the Spirit must be accompanied by speaking in tongues. Tongue speaking represents the inauguration of the new covenant at Passover, at Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2. And it demonstrates the salvation of Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And the followers of John the Baptist in Acts chapter 19. We have no evidence elsewhere that initiation in the church of Jesus Christ must be accompanied by speaking in other languages. We will discuss this more here in a minute. So we have the residency, and now see we have the relationship. Because the Holy Spirit now indwells us, he's regenerated us, he has taken up residency, now there's this intimate relationship that takes place. You're sealed and your sons. This is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit which results in relational intimacy. We are family. We're sons. We're daughters. We are prayed for. We are helped. We're having a personal relationship with corporate implications. Romans 8, 14 through 17 and 26 through 27. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray as, for, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. A beautiful understanding of this relationship is that it is intimate. Not only is it intimate in a personal way, but it's intimate in a corporate way. That the sin that remains in our lives, even though we're regenerate, even though he's taken up residency, and now we have this relationship, the sin that is in our lives does not separate us from God. It doesn't separate us because we've been sealed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 13 through 14, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In Ephesians 4.30, again, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So if we have this new relationship, this intimate relationship, we should live in a way that doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you've ever had teenagers living in your home. Um, maybe you've been that teenager living in a home, and so you can relate to this. Uh, this is not a personal story, so don't look at my kids or ask them questions after service. This is just a general, okay? This is just a general story. That you have a teenager who just thinks that they know better than you, right? That 
just throwing that out there. That happens every once in a while. The teenagers think that they know more than their parents. And though there are rules and though there's a relationship, a loving relationship in that home, that teen, that child still continues to break those rules. That teen decides, you know what, I think I know better than you. And so I'm going to continue to go down this path and I'm going to continue to make these decisions, even though these decisions grieve the parents. They hurt the parents' heart. It's actually caused friction in the relationship. There's irritability that wasn't there before because there's this grieving that's taking place. The child's not kicked out of the house. The child is loved. The child is cared for. The child has parents who are there to help in any way possible. And this is the relationship we have with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we're children who think we know better than God, and we continue to make decisions thinking we know what's best, and yet we are grieving that relationship. May it not be true of us today. D, renewal. It enables godly character and biblical understanding. Without the Spirit's presence in our life, we would just be reading words, but now that we have the Spirit, He awakens us to an understanding of His gospel. This is the sanctification that takes place in the life of a believer. Titus 3.5, he, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's a renewal that takes place. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Spirit is now working within us to transform us, to take us from one degree of glory to the next, to sanctify us, to work in us as salvation. And what he does is he produces in us a fruit, that fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are reactionary fruits, not actionary fruits. Do you respond in love? when you were persecuted, when you were hated? Do you respond with joy when you face trials? Do you have peace and patience with others when they get on your nerves? Do you have kindness and goodness and faithfulness being produced in your life? Gentleness. Do you have self-control when you face different temptations? It's not that you're following rules, but this is what the Spirit is producing in you because you have been regenerated. You have been indwelled, you have his residency within you, you have this intimate relationship, and now he is renewing you from one degree of glory to the next. This is the baptism of the Spirit that takes place in the life of a believer. E, reproduces. The Spirit empowers a ministry of reconciliation in the life of a believer. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-20. through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation by the presence of the Holy Spirit. God making his appeal through us. 
This is where Jesus will now quote from these pass- this passage in Luke. In Acts 1, Luke again writing, he references back to this, that Jesus said this in verses 4 through 10. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when, they had said, when he had said the, these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. What we see here is this transition period. There's a transition period that is taking place from the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ with his disciples to now it being handed off to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And so he's saying, listen, as I go away, I need you to wait here because there's, there's now going to be a transition from the earthly ministry of Christ to the earthly ministry of the church that is empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So he says, wait. Wait so that you can be filled with the Spirit. Now, obviously, these disciples were not experiencing a regeneration at this point. They're already followers of Jesus. But yet the Spirit is going to come upon them and be dwelling in them in a different, more more New Testament way for the witness to take place. So in order to be a witness, a real genuine witness, you must have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The word witness here in the Greek is martis. It's the, where we get the English word martyr from. So if you, if you read this, it's really as Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says, listen, you need to wait on the Holy Spirit because you're going to be martyred for me. You're going to be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses, and it's going to cost you your life. And it did. And if it hadn't been for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of these early believers, they would not have had the strength and the help to accomplish what God had placed on them. But you can also look at it this way. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and the baptism of the Spirit and salvation takes place, You have to die to yourself. You have to then be a living martyr. I die daily so that Christ may be seen in me. It is this idea of for me to be a witness, I'm going to have to die. And what's the thing that holds us back so often from being a witness? It's pride. Fear of man, our own sin, our own indifference. But yet, he wants to use us in a message of reconciliation. And then here's E. There's the last one, refining. We move from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he says, and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is to enlighten, to convict, and to purify you. This is the continual inner working of the Holy Spirit to bring out the impurities of our heart for a reoccurring repentance and confession of the sin within. This is all of life. As a believer, our salvation, yes, instantaneous, there's a justification, there's a regeneration that takes place in the life of a believer, and then there's a work of the Holy Spirit that takes place over the lifetime of our, of our walk with the Lord in salvation. 
And the refining part is this. In the ancient times, the metal workers, they would take the metal and they would put it over a hot fire and they would melt the metal. If you've been to Dollywood, you know what I'm talking about. So they would melt the metal and they would heat it up so, so much that all the impurities in the metal would then float. You know what I'm talking about? And so they would continually begin to skim off all the impurities until the metal was like glass and you could see a reflection. And this is the refining work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. That through the conviction of him in, in your life, he will continually bring to the surface sins that you didn't even know were there so that you can repent. And so he can take those out and then he can continue that work in you until one day you reflect Jesus Christ. And that will be when we reach glorification. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what happens with the baptism of the Spirit? Isaiah 4, 4 would say, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. The word there is purging. It says there, verse 17, His winnowing fork is at hand to be clear, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff... He will burn with unquenchable fire. Because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Lord knows who are his. There's no fooling Christ on who is a true believer and who is not a true believer. If he doesn't indwell the inside, you can't fool him by what you do on the outside. He knows who are his. Psalm 1 talks about this. Three through six, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Jesus has a perfect knowledge because he knows those who are his. Second Timothy 2.19 but God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And some of the most scary verses in all the Bible, I'll end with these. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus knows those who are his because his spirit is in those who are his. Salvation is his work. Jesus is not saying you need to do things in order to be saved. He's saying that it is evident that you have been saved because of the evidence that is in your life. So stop habitually sinning and start habitually practicing righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you do a work in us that we are incapable of understanding fully. You do so many unimaginable things in us that you would... You would turn up the heat of conviction in our life when there's accepted sin. That you would not allow us to walk in filth 
but we would hate sin today. And Lord, I do pray that if there's someone here today who is walking in sin, that that, would, that conviction by the indwelling presence of your spirit would be so hot that those impurities would come to the surface and that they would repent and you would remove those from their life. Father, you would continue that process in us until we reach glorification. And Father, if there's someone here today who does not know for certain that you have regenerated their heart, that you have transformed them, that you've taken them from death into life, that by the words of the gospel that they would respond today and that you would work upon their heart in such a way that they receive you and they would receive life and be forever changed because of your spirit. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand?